Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Wednesday, September 8th, we are studying Zephaniah chapter 2, verses 4 to 15. The Lord's word is not only for the people of Judah, it is for every nation. In today's text, the prophet Zephaniah looks toward each point of the compass to proclaim the word of the Lord to the nations around Israel. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us returning guest, Pastor Andrew Jago. Pastor Jago serves at Bethany Lutheran Church in Alexandria, Virginia. Pastor Jago, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thank you. Good to be here. How is Virginia this morning, Pastor Jago? Well, good. I, you know, we got a an anniversary coming up on the weekend, the 20th anniversary of 9/11. So, just something that me as a pastor I'm aware of that, you know, that people will be have some tender hearts uh not just uh, because of the trade towers but because the plane flew right here into the Pentagon, too. Certainly something for which the gospel is a a balm and a healing that in the midst of of that worldly pain that we have this heavenly treasure in the gospel. Indeed, and that's remained the case for 20 years and well beyond. Yes, God be praised for that. Pastor Jago, we are in Zephaniah chapter 2 today, and Zephaniah has the gospel, and I think we're going to get glimpses of it in our text today. I I have a, a picture in my mind of Zephaniah being very heavy-handed with the law in the first part, and then quite a bit of comfort in the gospel in the in the last part, that last chapter 3. But I, I'm noticing as I'm reading through Zephaniah now, these catches of the gospel here and there where there's hints or, or Brief, uh, a brief respite of the gospel in the midst of it. And I think we're going to see that in our text today. As, as we prepare to read these verses from chapter 2, sh- what should we know about the prophet, his ministry, and the, the surrounding context as we prepare to jump in? What's interesting, the last time I was on your show was during prophet Jeremiah. And it was in a, in a chapter or two of Jeremiah that looked at all the different nations around Judah. And same thing is going to happen today. Zephaniah is a contemporary of Jeremiah and the first part of Jeremiah's ministry under King Josiah. Josiah uh, had a bit of a revival, a reformation going on because uh, the Book of the Covenant was found and a lot of reforms, religious reforms, were taking place. And the prophets were the prophetic voice to support those reforms. Uh, but then there were people that were rejecting those reforms. And so Zephaniah preaches about the day of the Lord. All three chapters of his book, uh, this minor prophet, not minor because he's less important, but minor because he's smaller than the major prophets. Um, all 12 of the minor prophets fit onto one scroll, as opposed to Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel taking up a whole scroll just to themselves. Um, and Zephaniah's main theme is the day of the Lord. Uh, the theme certainly is, I mean, right there up front in the first chapter. And even though he touches on Jerusalem and Judah, you just sense this. there's this cosmic scope with the day of the Lord that affects all of creation. Uh, and zeroing in on, on verses 14 through 16, you know, the day is described as 
a day of wrath, what does that look like? Distress, anguish, darkness, gloom, clouds, thick darkness, and then finally a trumpet and a battle cry. And that, man, that's a downer. <laughs> that's a, you could feel the darkness and gloom just gathering in that chapter. Um, but then, all of a sudden, in chapter 2, we, we go out from Jerusalem, and we get this sense of cosmic destruction that is going to happen around the nations uh, that surround God's people. And I believe you ended the show la- uh, yesterday with verse 3, and I think it's good to start there today. Seek the Lord, all you humble the land who do his just commands, seek righteousness, seek humility. That's what Zephaniah, that's the reaction he's, he's looking for from the preaching of the law. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. So the Lord's anger, we're going to see today, is not just for his people, but he holds all the nations to, uh, to that anger as well. And so the events that will shape God's people over the next few centuries also will be shaping the rest of the world. It seems to me the last time you were on, when we talked through a portion of Jeremiah, you also had one of these texts where the prophet speaks to foreign nations more than the people of God. And that's what we're going to read today. Zephaniah is going to preach to four different nations that are around Israel. We'll talk about those. And sometimes those sections of the prophets can be among the more difficult ones to read. It's usually a bit easier for us to take the sections that are applied to Judah, to Israel, to the church, and apply them to ourselves today as Christians. But when we read about the foreign nations, sometimes the historical context is a little bit different and perhaps really off our radar. And and it's maybe a little more difficult for us. When we encounter sections like this, you know, how do we take those, make use of them as Christians? Why are they important for us to, to keep reading, even when sometimes things may seem a bit obscure to us? Well, so, yeah, I mean, this does get a little data heavy with all the places and, you know, so I, when we're doing a Bible class, I point out that, you know, having a Bible dictionary or a Bible atlas, you know, so you can, you get a visual in your head and you get some of the history that's there that helps to enhance God's word a bit. But I mean, the, the main point, though, is not any more complicated than what we learned in Sunday school, where we sing the song, he's got the whole world in his hands. So God's concern is not just, you know, for a small group of people or even, you know, for you and me, certainly we make that personal, but he loved the whole world that he sent his only son. Uh, So, of course, we're going to see God working in history through people, real people, um, and through these events uh, in order, he's a God of means. So he works through those means in order to work out salvation for all of us. Yeah, I love that. He's got the whole world in his hands, that when we see the prophets turn and and speak to the nations around Israel, that's a, a wonderful reminder. Even if we can't figure out precisely where every city is, or, or we don't know all the context, that mm-hmm. we see God acting as the God, not just of Israel, but the God for the whole world, that the salvation that he's bringing through the people of Israel and bringing the promised Savior is not just for Israel, but it is for all these people as well. And so he he does have a word to speak to them, and we shouldn't be terribly surprised about that. And and we should rejoice in the fact that he does take the time to speak that word to these foreign nations, because he loves them too. He, he wants them to hear of the salvation, to receive the salvation that's coming through the people Israel. So that's what we're going to hear today in Zephaniah 2, verses 4 to 15. So we, we turn to the text. For Gaza shall be deserted, 
and Ashkelon shall become a desolation. Ashdod's people shall be driven out at noon, and Ekron shall be uprooted. Woe to you, inhabitants of the seacoast, you nation of the Carathites! The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, land of the Philistines, and I will destroy you until no inhabitant is left. And you, O seacoast, shall be pastures, with meadows for shepherds and folds for flocks. The seacoast shall become the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah, on which they shall graze. And in the houses of Ashkelon they shall lie down at evening. For the Lord their God will be mindful of them and restore their fortunes. I have heard the taunts of Moab and the revilings of the Ammonites, how they have taunted my people and made boasts against their territory. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Moab shall become like Sodom and the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a land possessed by nettles and salt pits and a waste forever. The remnant of my people shall plunder them and the survivors of my nation shall possess them. This shall be their lot in return for their pride because they taunted and boasted against the people of the Lord of hosts. The Lord will be awesome against them for he will famish all the gods of the earth and to him shall bow down each in its place all the lands of the nations. You also, O Cushites, shall be slain by my sword. And he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria, and he will make Nineveh a desolation, a dry waste like the desert. Herds shall lie down in her midst, all kinds of beasts, even the owl and the hedgehog shall lodge in her capitals. A voice shall hoot in the window. Devastation will be on the threshold for her cedar work will be laid bare. This is the exultant city that lived securely, that said in her heart, I am and there is no one else. What a desolation she has become, a lair for wild beasts. Everyone who passes by her hisses and shakes his fist. That's our text for today. Zephaniah 2 verses 4 to 15. Pastor Jago, the way this text is laid out uh, is, I, I believe, there are four primary sections, and, and it's Zephaniah turning to the various points of the compass was the way that I read it in one commentary that I found helpful, that he first turns to the west to look at the Philistines, he turns to the east to look at Moab and Ammon, he turns south to look at Cush and north to Assyria. So that's the general structure, I think, of this text. So we, we first turn to the Philistines. And the Philistines are, are one, I think, when it comes to the foreign nations in the Bible, that they show up in a lot of the, if I can say it, Sunday school stories, David and Goliath comes to mind, where we, we know that name, the Philistines. But maybe we don't know all the, the background or some of the more nitty-gritty details about the Philistines, and we meet a little bit here. What's some of that historical context with the, the Philistines that we should know as we look at verses 4 to 7 here in chapter 2 of Zephaniah? Well, they're not an organized, uh, they, they're organized mostly into these cities. And well, there's five cities, but prophetically, both in Amos and here, uh, just four cities are mentioned. Interesting. Um, not sure what that means. <laughs> but, yeah. um, but they also are, they do play a key part in, throughout Israel's history, especially during the times of David and, uh, well, Solomon, there's peace, uh, but all throughout the time of, of judges and then the time of David, uh, there is war with these city-states that line up on the coast. Um, their placement is really interesting because the, the main 
kingdoms of Mesopotamia and then down uh, up to the north and then Egypt down to the south have to go along the way of the sea, which takes them through the territory of the 12 tribes, but also through these city-states as well. Um, so, yes, they, they play a, a very important role for trade, for business, you know, for the uh, for basically the growth of of those ancient kingdoms there that are all mentioned in the Bible. Um, yeah, David and Goliath, and uh, uh, they're just a David is the one though who finally uh, defeats the Philistines, and eventually there is peace in the days of Solomon, and they're kind of quiet throughout the first and second kings. Uh, but mentioned here because they they do play roles uh, they have roles to play when the nation of Assyria is ascended they eventually are wiped out by Assyria coming down and sweeping down the coast and then going up to the city of Jerusalem uh, to line up around their walls but then for God to have turn, to turn them back uh, during the time of Hezekiah. The Philistines aren't what you might call a major player in terms of the scope of world history at this point. They, they probably fall very similarly to, say, where Judah and Israel are, Moab and Ammon. They're more of these smaller regional territories, at least, you know, broadly speaking, in a, in a political sense. They're not an Assyria or a Babylon or an Egypt, but they do play a very significant role in the history of, of Israel. Uh, Samson is another place where, where the mm -hmm. Philistines figure prominently. I think you mentioned the book of Judges already. So, yeah, I mean, early in Israel's history, they're they're pretty, pretty fierce enemy. There's a, a lull, but they're always kind of around there, possibly causing trouble for the people of God there in, in Israel and in Judah until, as you said, they, they do get wiped out. You said there's five cities total. The ones that we have mentioned here are Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, and Ekron. And then the missing one is is Gath, which I believe that was where Goliath was from. I think I think he was from Gath, and and I, from, go ahead. No, yes, you are right. <laughs> okay, okay, good. I thought I thought I had that right. So the and and from what I read, the perhaps the reason Gath is missing is because by this point in history, uh, perhaps it had been destroyed. It could be the reason that it's not mentioned because it is rather. I mean, when you know there's five cities, the fact that it's missing stands out. Yeah, and then but then in the same token, it's missing in Amos and chapter one. Amos goes around you know for three sins and for four, in that opening section of his book too. So, yeah, I mean it could be poetic or prophetic or yeah, as you said, I thought that too that maybe at this point there is no more Gath, so we need not mention it. The other the other thing to point out perhaps before we dig into what is spoken to the Philistines here is that verse five where it's it speaks to the nation of the Carathites. And and is is that another way of referring to the Philistines? Oh, I'm glad that you pronounced that before I tried it. <laughs> so, <laughs> we'll go with what I said. <laughs> uh, yes, and in the uh, book of Ezekiel, in fact. I mean, so another thing for the listeners is that these sections where prophets are looking around at the other nations, you'll find that uh, similar sections and uh, similar sections in Isaiah we mentioned Jeremiah before, but also in Ezekiel and in some of the other minor prophets like Amos. Uh, in Ezekiel chapters 24 and 25, I believe there's uh, a number of nations that are mentioned, including the land of the Philistines. And, and Carathites is, is, the, is used interchangeably with the Philistines. I think it comes from the island of Crete is the, the linguistic root there, uh, which may speak to the origins, and that might be where the Philistines came from.
I think I've I think I've heard that before that there is a perhaps a, a relationship between the island of Crete and the Philistines. So that that would make sense. So that's kind of mm-hmm. the the historical context for these verses. We we have a at least a, a way of feeling around from some of these names. Now, what about what does the Lord actually have to say to the Philistines, uh, particularly as he he addresses the four cities in turn in verse four? What what's going on there poetically, and and what is the Lord saying to the people of of the Philistines? Poetically, there's so much. I mean, I, so I'm not terribly great at my Hebrew, but once in a while, you know, a commentator will mention something that you should pay attention to. And so one commentator mentioned that there is a lot of alliteration going on in the Hebrew, like some very similar sounding words, for instance, Gaza and the word in English, deserted. Um, so Aza and Azuba. So if you imagine the prophet, you know, kind of rolling, uh, the Hebrew rolling off of his tongue, uh, that might help. Uh, it, why is that important for us to know? Because if you were listening to this, you wouldn't have, you know, be carrying around the book of Zephaniah in your back pocket at the time. You would listen to the prophet and the words would be such that it would stick in your brain. Um, so, you know, this is this is this is being passed on in that way or, or someone is writing it down and, uh, you know, having alliteration like that uh, it helps stick it in the brain. I wish we had the similar for in in the English language, but that's why I like to look at the parallelism. That is, you look at how things line up in each verse. So look at the proper nouns there, Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, and Ekron. And then what word is associated with each of those? Deserted, desolation. Here's my favorite, driven out at noon, and then finally uprooted. <laughs> I was I was in my uh, my dad's garden uh, doing a lot of weeding recently as I visited my parents uh, on a recent visit, so he can he can find his tomatoes again. I did a lot of that uprooting <laughs> of the of the weeds. Um, driven out at noon is an interesting, and and that goes to the time as well, where and the and the climate. Which, well, actually, the climate is still not just in that time, but today in the Middle East, where high noon. Uh, it's probably a time for siesta, probably a time where you would rest a little bit from the day's work, uh, because that's when the sun is at its hottest and baking you at, you know, over 100 degrees. So, you know, you would take a break at that time. But sudden disaster, that's what that means uh, for that city. There will be sudden disaster when you're not ready, when you're not prepared for it. Man, a lot goes into that one little phrase. Um so looking at those phrases and how they line up with the cities, you know, tells you it, it's like the opening chapter of Zephaniah, very poetically giving you what kind of destruction is heading uh, your way on the day of the Lord. Mm-hmm. Um, and just to, to go launch into a little bit here with the, the next few verses, uh, I just like the image. If you look at verses six and seven of of the seacoast, you know, the busy seacoast, the big cities. Uh, that are there, you know, for the, and, and you, again, imagine the road of trade, you know, going past those cities and how bustling they are. Well, no, they're going to be there for the shepherds and for the flocks. Uh, so that's, that's what the, what will take over the seacoast there. Uh, and then we get into a little gospel, which I'll save perhaps for the, the uh, um, and take a pause here when we, uh, as we look, as we pause looking at the cities. Right, a couple of, a couple of thoughts when with the the poetic structure of verse four, a commentary that I had looked at suggested perhaps a way we could do something similar in English with Ashdod or Ashkelon would be Ashkelon is turned to ashes. That's the kind oh. of 
memory, or I think they suggested yeah, yeah. Ekron uh, will be eradicated. Those those kinds of uh, sound, you know, the ways that we use our sounds in the English language, that's what's going on there in the Hebrew. And as you said, it, it does make it more memorable, and mm-hmm. and it certainly you know sticks it you know sticks it in your mind so that you can remember or repeat it. And and then just that imagery that's there is as you said is very vivid. This is the prophet Zephaniah. He's he's not really changing his his technique here at this point. He's been vivid all along concerning the day of the Lord. He's simply applying it very very vividly to the people of the Philistines at this moment. As as you get into the verses six and seven with the the changing of the seacoast to a pasture land for shepherds, I think there's there's two things going on. And and one, I think you you've touched on both. You know, one is that this this way of trade, which would have been a more of a bustling economic place, is now just going to be a place where where shepherds are grazing their fields. So it's a you know an economic impact perhaps, and that's a, a matter of judgment against the Philistines. But I think it also points us toward the gospel, especially when you connect it to verse seven and the mention mm-hmm. of the remnant of the house of Judah, because right. the people of Israel. Are not a seacoast people. They're a you know they live more in the the mountainous area, the the Shephelah, the hills of Israel, and they're grazing their sheep. And so for the seacoast, this enemy territory, the Philistines, to become a place for sheep to graze, I think fits in with what's said in verse seven about the remnant of Israel possessing this land, and and that's where we do I think get a, a touch of gospel for God's people in this text. Indeed, I. I, I... A couple of things there with the sheep and the and the shepherd. I definitely you've got to hear echoes. I think of David, the shepherd king who routed the Philistines, defeated them. Um, but then uh, you know after the time of war, I don't know sheep grazing. I connect that image with peace, with shalom in the Bible. Um, the, 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 the sheep peacefully grazing underneath the care of the shepherd. There's the, the good shepherd psalm that David wrote that gives us that very vivid imagery as well. So maybe a time for, for war to cease and maybe a connection to the promise that God gives to the remnant. Yeah, the, the remnant theme comes up here, which it's one of those, you know, in the book of Zephaniah, at least so far, there hasn't been a whole lot of of hope. There there was, you know, you you did bring up the the verse from yesterday's text, verse 3 of this chapter where the humble are called upon to seek the Lord and and the Zephaniah says, you know, maybe you'll be hidden on the day of the Lord. Perhaps we're not not presuming upon the Lord. He mm-hmm. he may bring you through this this upcoming captivity or you you may die along with with the rest. There's a, a you know, promise of, of eternal salvation there, but not necessarily salvation in this life. And yet here with that remnant theme, I think it, it plays on that, that note of hope that was there in the, the beginning of this chapter that, oh yeah, the, the Lord is going to spare a remnant. There's a, a note of hope, even as there's you know, still the talk of judgment, it's only a remnant that's going, I mean, I guess you, could, you can hear that both mm-hmm. ways. It's only a remnant. And so don't forget that this prophecy about the day of the Lord is coming against you, O Judah, but also take heart, the Lord will spare a remnant. I think, you know, both law and gospel can be inherent in the the way that it comes up here in verse 7. Absolutely. I mean, at the beginning of every show of Sharper Iron, you talk about the double-edged sword uh, as your tag, you know, the double-edged sword of, of law and gospel. And certainly the remnant is that, the law yeah, only a little bit of you are going to survive. Uh, you know, this is, this is this, there's going to be such sweeping judgment. But 
you will survive. And from that remnant, I mean, we look forward to the future promises of the son of David who comes and restores God's kingdom once and for all. That's right. So that remnant theme comes up here in chapter two, a bit of good news in the midst of, of this day of the Lord judgment talk. So far, we've looked at what the Lord has spoken to the people of the Philistines here in Zephaniah, and we're going to pick up what he says to the other nations on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're talking Zephaniah chapter two with Pastor Andrew Jago. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Listen to KFUO wherever your day takes you. Download the KFUO radio, iOS, or Android app to your mobile device. You can listen to our 24-7 live stream, find all of our podcasts, browse our program schedule, or record a comment to send directly to KFUO. Just search for KFUO radio in your favorite app store. KFUO radio, Christ for you, anytime and anywhere. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Did you know that your individual retirement account may make the best gift to KFUO? The IRS now allows individuals 70 and a half or older to transfer their required minimum distribution directly to charity and avoid paying the associated income tax. These gifts can provide regular long-term resources to KFUO. If you have questions about making an IRA gift to KFUO, call me, Mary, at 314-996-1518. We'll send a representative out to help answer your questions and help you establish a legacy of giving to your favorite radio station, Worldwide KFUO. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Wednesday, September 8th. We're studying Zephaniah chapter 2, verses 4 to 15 with Pastor Andrew Jago. He serves at Bethany Lutheran Church in Alexandria, Virginia. Pastor Jago, prior to the break, we were looking at what the Lord says to the Philistines. So Zephaniah has turned to the west to look at them. Then he does an about face, turns to mm. the east, and he, he speaks now to Moab and to Ammon. And so in two nations here, but they go together often in the scriptures because they share a, a family heritage. That's one of those accounts in the scriptures that sometimes we skip over in Sunday school. Who, uh, who yeah. are the Moabites? Who are the Ammonites? What should we know about them historically as we prepare to look at what the Lord says to them here? Well, keeping things PG in <laughs> this early show, uh, they're descendants of Lot, who are who is Abraham's brother. So yes, there's this blood tie between uh, the Israelites and to the Moabites and the Ammonites. So in terms of their relationship with the people of Israel, they have that relationship, you know, family speaking, Lot is Abraham's nephew, and so that's where they trace their lineage. So they're, they're connected, they're very close, and they're also close geographically. How, what's the history in terms of their relationship with the people of Israel like with Moab and Ammon? 
well, going all the way back to Lot, you see the reference to Sodom and Gomorrah in this section, um, alluding to the destruction for the sin God saved Lot out of that city. So there's one historic tie that's there, but also uh, all throughout the time that they were, uh, so fast forward 400 years, about to Moses and the Exodus and uh, the Moabites. Well, what is the phrase? No one hurts you like family. And the Moabites are constantly getting in the way of the Israelites, you know, between the Israelites and the promised land. Many of their kings are defeated. I guess most notably is Balaam and Balak. Uh, King Balak uh, sends the prophet Balaam out to curse the Israelites, and he can't help but have his tongue turn around on him and bless them instead. I mean, I, those are those are where the Sunday school <laughs> material there that uh, that we um, have. You go on in history, and and of course, there's the Moabites are mentioned all through the Book of Judges. One of my favorite parts, though, is when when uh, not with all the fighting. But there's a, a person from the land of Moab named Ruth, who becomes uh, a, you know, one of the, the people in the line of David, uh, becomes part of Jesus's genealogy uh, because of the, the law that God has, the compassion shown to those who are poor, the, the importance of the family and the land. And it shows you those things. Of, so while the book of Judges shows you all the negative things that happen when people do what they want, here's the book of Ruth that give you positive examples of, of the covenant and how someone was loved, really, into the, the kingdom of the Lord um, and, uh, and becomes part of, of the, the, the greatest story uh, the, with the line of Jesus as well. Well, there's a whole lot of other things to mention with Moab, but I think those are the main highlights there. Yeah, the the account of Ruth. I think anytime you you come across Moab, Ruth should come to mind, and rightly yeah. so. And and I, I love the the juxtaposition that you mentioned between the Book of Judges and the Book of Ruth. That uh, on the and just just as an aside, because I do think this is such a, a wonderful thing that happens on the, on the whole, the people of Israel are pretty faithless, as you read in the Book of Judges. Mm. But there's this one faithful family. That, that is recounted in the book of Ruth. And, and because of that, you know, this foreigner gets included into the family of God and actually becomes a part of the line of Christ. It's just, it's a beautiful account. I mean, a, a wonderful picture of the grace of God. And so anytime we, we do see Moab in the scriptures, I think that needs to be in the back of our minds. Mm -hmm. even, even though, I mean, as we see here in Zephaniah and often in the prophets, Moab is often spoken against as an enemy of God's people. And, and certainly they prove to be an enemy of God's people throughout history. I do think that, that what happens with Ruth and the way that she gets you know, included into the, the family line of Christ is, is always there in the background. And I think it's in the background even here in, in Zephaniah, as, as we'll see in verse 11. I, I think, again, we're going to get another one of those hints of the gospel there. What about the, the nation of the Ammonites? Again, you know, all throughout the Bible, and um, well, let's see. I, I think that you know the 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 Ammonites uh, in particular uh, are just a thorn in the side. I mean, they're just mentioned alongside all these other ancient enemy <laughs> Canaanite enemies. But I think more significantly, I, I'm trying to remember if there was a particular connection between them and the God that's mentioned in chapter one of Zephaniah, Molech. Um, both Molech and Baal are are mentioned pretty explicitly as as one of the reasons why, or the reasons why, the day of the Lord is coming in judgment. Despite the reforms of King Josiah, there's still this 
worship of pagan gods alongside the worship of the true Lord, and that just will not stand. Well, Moloch in particular is one who you know called for child sacrifice, and there's there's a lot of things with Baal where the worship of that god is worshiping uh, you know, the rain coming down and, and fertility and things like that, when God is the one who provides all those. And the Israelites get tripped up over the, the worship of these foreign gods so often in their history. And it, and it just really, well, it, it really lends to the destruction of the northern tribes first, and then ultimately the southern tribes as well. So as Zephaniah speaks to Moab and Ammon. He does so in verses 8 through 11. And there's a couple points I think we should pick up. Now, one you, you mentioned already, so I think we'll start there with Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, Moab shall become like Sodom, the Ammonites like Gomorrah. To, hmm. to speak in that language, I mean, what, what is the prophet saying when he calls to mind Sodom and Gomorrah and their destruction? Well, there's, there's again, a lot of sin. Perhaps that was connected to the worship of these other gods, but there was just a complete abandonment of any uh, morality, we'll say, any moral code, any ethics. Um, and sin was just, it was just a, a city just with wanton abandon, if I want to see it. <laughs> Trying to keep this PG, but yeah, that, that was, uh, and so ultimately it was destruction along the lines of like Noah, you know, this, this complete and total destruction. Destruction along the lines of what we read at the very beginning of Zephaniah. Um, just very complete because of the depravity and the sin that is there. Hmm. Right. So to, to say that place will be destroyed like Sodom or Gomorrah is to indicate a, a total destruction. And I mean, the mention of the, the nettles, the salt pits, a waste this, forever. Yeah. I think that that goes right in line with that. The, the salt pits. I mean, we remember Lot's wife being turned to a pillar of salt. Right. Um, so for looking back. So, yeah, that's 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 something where unlike the next section, the, the animals aren't even going to go near it. Uh, I mean, it's just, uh, you know, being a, a wasteland. So with, let's see, we've got Sodom and Gomorrah. One thing, I, I kind of skipped over this in verse 8. It's, it strikes me that the first thing that the Lord speaks against Moab and Ammon is that they've taunted his people, that, that that's, mm -hmm. you know, they've reviled them, which fits in well, I think, with what you were bringing up, particularly with Moab, and when the people of Israel are making their journey to the Promised Land, how Moab is a particular thorn in their side, this, this taunting, this reviling of the people of God. It's almost uh, kind of the picture that, that I have here is, the Lord is telling Moab and Ammon, look, if you pick a fight with my people, you're really picking a fight with me. And and I am, and I don't think it's it's an accident here that Zephaniah mm. names him the Lord of hosts, the God of armies. You know, I mean, so to pick a fight with God's people is actually to pick a fight with him, and and that's to be on the wrong side of the fight. Yeah, imagine the arrogance. Um, so the, the, the taunting, the boasting, um, and taunting is there both in verse eight and in verse ten. Um, the the arrogance that is that is prompting this uh, destruction. Um, <laughs> this shall be their lot in return for their pride. I wonder if there's well, that's just an, a way it worked out there in English. But um, their lot is to is, no, you will you will face the Lord of hosts. He will be awesome against them. Uh, and this phrase in particular really caught my attention. He will, f in the ESV, famish all the gods of the earth. I think in other translations it's like destroy. I didn't really look closely at that, but when I see the word famish, like you will 
starve them. Um, yeah. So that's that's another you know, the word for destruction, uh, a synonym I, I would not have thought of without looking at this verse. And I wonder if that's a play on, you know, because these are gods of fertility, gods of the land, uh, that, that have constantly been in Israel's history. I think of like Elijah, who predicted the, the, the large famine uh, that will happen. And, uh, and also, um, Hosea, uh, one another one of the minor prophets with the northern tribes, and how his turn of phrase often went, to, you know, to talk about how God is the one who provides all these things for you, not Baal. Yeah, that that talk of famishing or starving, I think, is a good translation as well. Hmm. I think that that's that's one part of the image, and that is a, certainly an image of of judgment. That you know, when you when you worship these idols who claim to be able to give fertility to the earth and cause it to you know, bring forth and sprout and grow, then, then what happens? Well, the Lord shows you who the true God is. And I think the, the famine that he brings on the land in the days of Elijah is a great example of that. He shows very clearly the people of Israel that their trust in Baal will not get them anything, that the Lord is the one who's, who's in, in charge of all this. He's the one who gives food, rain, all the needs of the body. And so to, to famish or to starve the gods of the earth, I think, is, is a language of, of judgment. I, I read in another commentary that perhaps there's a, a bit of a, a gospel move here as well, that to starve or to famish the gods of the earth could, could be speaking in relationship to the way that pagan worship was thought to work, that in making sacrifices— to these idols, one of the things that they were doing was feeding their gods. That was the mm-hmm. conception of worship in, in pagan idolatry. And so for the Lord to starve these idols, these gods of the earth, would be to, to take those worshipers for himself, to, I mean, to convert them, uh, in, in other words, so that the, mm. the gods have no one to feed them by their, by their worship. These idols don't, because the Lord has, has shown them who the true God is, that he's the true God, and brought them to worship him instead, which I think ties in toward the end of verse 11. And, and if that's part of the imagery, then I think, I mean, this is, a, this is an even more expansive gospel mm. turn here that Zephaniah is making, because you know, previously he talked about the remnant of Judah, but here he's talking about people from all nations coming to the true worship. I mean, that's a that's an even more expansive view of the gospel, if that's what Zephaniah has got in mind here. Indeed. I mean, that certainly would show the Lord being awesome, <laughs> is, uh, is all the nations of the earth, as Isaiah say, said, coming to the mountain, you know, and recognizing the Lord. That's in the Old Testament. We can fast forward to the New Testament, to Philippians chapter 2, and see where the Apostle Paul talks about another day of the Lord. That helps us keep in mind the prophetic perspective, I think, of that phrase. The day of the Lord is coming for judgment, you know, it, to the people the prophet is speaking to. But also, there's a day, whenever you're talking about judgment, a day of judgment, well, there was that day on Good Friday where our Lord yeah. took all the judgment for us. And then because of that day, the day of judgment where we will have Christ's righteousness. And the way that Paul describes it in Philippians 2 is that every knee will bow and every tongue confess. When I see here in verse 4 that, you know, and to him shall bow down each in its place all the lands of the nations, that's, a, that's precisely where my mind went to when I read that. 
Yeah, the the bowing down. I think yeah, Philippians two is is there the the coming of all the nations, and and again combined with the day of the Lord language that Zephaniah brings up also brings to mind the day of Pentecost, where you know mm. Peter is there preaching on Joel two, and and Joel is another one of the prophets who really talks a lot about the day of the Lord, and and so that that day has come to pass, you know, as you said, and and uh, we should always think about this when we read about the day of the Lord in the Old Testament that the judgment comes down on Christ on the day, Good Friday, for our sakes, so that now, I mean, we turn to the Lord to bow down to him in in worship, in true faith. And Pentecost is another fulfillment of that. So even, I mean, this is what's striking about these words against the nations. And, and you know, so often, I think, at least as I read in, in commentaries or other Christian literature, Sections like this are sometimes called oracles against the nations. And, you know, there's no doubt that the primary thrust of Zephaniah's words here are words of law, judgment, condemnation. But it's not because the Lord is against the nations. It's because he's for the nations and he wants to call them to repentance as well and, and to faith in him. And so maybe that's just, you know, one way oracles for the nations, the word of the Lord to the nations. He's, he's not against them. He loves them and he wants them to repent and be brought to faith along with his own people. And I think I, even, even in the midst of lots of judgment talk from Zephaniah, I think you see that purpose of the Lord shine through in this verse particularly. It goes all the way back to, again, the days of Abraham. Your seed will be blessed. You will be, it will be blessing to all nations. So even there at the very beginning of the, the nation, uh, the, 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 the fact that a remnant of them will survive is also a blessing to these other nations. So as the prophet continues, he's, he's again turned west to the Philistines, east to Moab and Ammon. Now he turns south to Cush, and that's verse 12. There's only one verse here for, for <laughs> Cush. And it, I, I will say, you, know, I mean, you also, O Cushites, shall be slain by my sword. Fair enough. Very simple. I, yeah. I do think it's, and and it. I'm, not, I'm not sure that we can say much, but it's, I find it a bit unusual that Zephaniah chooses to speak to the Cushites in the south rather than, say, Egypt. Who, who are the Cushites, uh, Pastor Jago? So they are the, the it's the area um, uh, of Ethiopia, East Africa. And, of course, they're, they're mentioned here and there throughout the scriptures, and uh, the Ethiopian eunuch in the book of Acts um, who receives the word of Isaiah, you know, and, and then brings back, presumably, the good news to his nation. That's, that's you know, in the New Testament. And then little na- mentions here and there in the Old Testament. And historically, they, were, they had close ties with the nation of, of Egypt at this time. Um, and they would be like the extreme south. Well, just like in the next section, Assyria would be the extreme north. I really puzzled as to, uh, I am still puzzled as to why there's just one verse of the Cushites. That seems so out of place when the rest of the sections get, you know, a handful of verses, and then this is one verse. So that's why I'm thinking maybe this this is meant to be connected with the next section, going south and north, kind of covering both the extreme south and north at the same time. It could also be that there, there is that solid connection with the Egyptians, and the Egyptians at this time are interfering with uh, the, the, the nations to the north of uh, Syria. And there's a whole big tangled mess that's going to happen with Assyria, Babylon, and Egypt, um, something that will have a direct impact on, on the nation of Judah. Hmm. So, yeah, Cush doesn't get much of a mention, very, very uh, 
just the one verse. And perhaps, you know, Cush would have been, I think, toward the the very limits of the knowledge of the people of Israel or the reach of the people of Israel. There's probably not too much farther south that the people of Israel would have thought. And so so maybe what's happening here, you know, as he looks south and north, is he's he's reaching to the outer limits of their their knowledge of what the world is. So the Lord's, you know, the Lord is Lord over the people right next to you, Israel, and he's Lord over everything, the the people hmm. farthest away from you. And so Cush gets that very short mention. And Assyria gets a little bit longer of a mention. And that's we we need to take a look at them because at the time of Zephaniah, they're really on their way out as the world power, but they're mm-hmm. still kind of hanging on. And and Zephaniah really is, I think, preaching here about their coming destruction, and particularly the destruction of Nineveh. So historically, what should we know about the people of Assyria looking at these last few verses of Zephaniah 2? Yes, their last gasp will be there in Nineveh, uh, modern-day Iraq, I believe. Um, and uh, so in that part of the world, and ultimately there's there's going to be uh, the battle where that city is destroyed. And, and incidentally, a lot of these verses really fulfilled. It will become a desolation um, and ruins where the animals will, you know, owls will be up there hooting and, and the cedar, I love this phrase, the cedar work laid bare. I mean, that, that gives you an image in your mind of, of like ruins, something where civilization really was, but now uh, it's just laid waste. And this is something that will really affect, I mean, now, the, the Assyrians are there uh, and battling Babylon. <laughs> King Josiah is going to get involved in all these the, the political intrigue that happens in this part of the world. And unfortunately, it's going to cost him his life at the hands of the Egyptians. That's right. He he dies in the Battle of, of Megiddo, trying to prevent the Egyptians from moving up to the north. And there's, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's quite something, this time period, just historically, yeah. how much the people of God are caught up in the middle of it. And I think, you know, the, it's tempting to, to look at it on a purely political, historical mm-hmm. level. And, and certainly that's interesting. And, and it's, I think it's worth our time to have a grasp of, of what those you know big movements are. But the thing I love about the prophets is that they help us to see these things theologically. Such that when you know Assyria, as, as we look at them here, do come that that nation does come to an end. It's not only because, or not even primarily, because you know Babylon's the new big boy in town, but it has to do with the pride of Assyria. That that when Assyria falls, the Lord is bringing His judgment, and I think we need to we need to look at this phrase. Now, he's bringing his judgment for what they've been saying. It's in verse 15. They were saying mm-hmm. in, in their heart, I am and there is no one else. Why is that such a, a striking phrase for Assyria to be thinking? Well, just stop with the words, I am. I mean, yikes. <laughs> there's, there's only one, in, uh, uh, only the Lord in the Bible says that phrase, I am, and there, and, and then, and there is no one else. That is the supreme height of arrogance. And there are kings throughout the history that you see them in the Bible, and and of course they write about themselves on walls and in pottery and in clay tablets and so forth that the archaeologists dig up where they really arrogate themselves to the place of God. 
so my goodness, I am, and there is no one else that is uh, that that should give one pause when you read that 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 there would be someone besides God who would say that, and as a result, there is this desolation, this waste. In the book of Proverbs, pride goeth before the fall, right? So this exultant city that lives securely uh, is is going to be brought down that low. Yeah, that, those words from Assyria are, are very striking. And, and mm-hmm. particularly, you know, just thinking through some of the history that we do know scripturally, particularly the city of Nineveh, this is the, the city that, oh, about 100, 150 years previously— had heard the preaching of the prophet of the Lord, Jonah. I mean, we, we usually remember Jonah for his, mm. his reluctance to go and, and the, the fish that swallows him and, and all of those Sunday school details. But remember, he was sent to Nineveh, and Nineveh repented at his mm-hmm. preaching, which, I mean, it's just a, a fantastic example of the, you know, the, again, the worldwide reach of the gospel, that the Lord intends salvation for all people. But it's, you know, a generation, generation or two, later that Assyria has gotten too big for its britches, has, has been filled with this pride, and now has, has completely fallen into this idolatry of, of self. And, and the Lord had used Assyria as the rod of his anger against you know, the northern kingdom Israel, but that didn't prevent them from being judged. They, they went too far. I mean, this is a, a theme that happens often in the prophets where the Lord will make use of a foreign nation to bring judgment upon his people. But when they go too far, when they think of themselves as gods, think of themselves as, as in charge of history, the Lord shows them who remains in charge, and it, it is the Lord. And, I mean, this, again, this phrase from Assyria, again, is very, very striking for that reason, just to see how far they've fallen and, and how they've gone right into the, the worst sort of idolatry, trusting in themselves, thinking that they are you know, God overall. Yeah, and as Nebuchadnezzar could tell you, that's a good way to end up in the cow yeah. pasture. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, the Lord, you know, this is where, where the Lord does these nations that he uses. He shows that he still reigns supreme over them all. And and what happens to Assyria, as it's listed here, what will happen to Babylon later, that those are, are prime examples. And even what happens to his own people, Judah and Israel, that's that's a wonderful example as well. It's it's somewhat striking just thinking about the book of Zephaniah and, and maybe has a, a feel for where Zephaniah falls during Josiah's reign. You know, we we know he was a prophet during the reign of Josiah. We don't know precisely when. The fact that mm-hmm. he sets his eyes here on Assyria rather than Babylon perhaps indicates that this is earlier in Josiah's reign, while Assyria still has a, a bit more of a grasp on its power and Babylon isn't quite as strong. And, and so, you know, Babylon, even though Babylon is certainly in view as the one who will come and, and bring judgment upon God's people, doesn't really get a mention. And then the other thing going forward, I think and we'll talk more about this tomorrow, but the prophet has looked again, west, east, south, north, He's going to come back to the center of the bullseye, to the people of, of Judah and Jerusalem, uh, perhaps to their surprise at the beginning of chapter 3. And so he's, he's not done with his words to the people of Israel, even as he's focused on the nations. So well, that's just a, a look ahead and thinking about the prophet as a whole. We have indeed, about, if if ahead, God is going to punish the arrogance of the other nations, how much more his own people? That's right. And, and sometimes, you know, the prophets do that, I think, as a way of kind of catching the people of Israel off guard. Like, oh, yeah, all these nations, they deserve it. And then, oh, wait, we do, yeah. too. And that's where the, the prophet's going to go tomorrow. 
got about two minutes here on the morning, Pastor Jago. As, as you reflect on this part of Zephaniah chapter two, everything we've talked about, help us to, to wrap things up. And, and from this text, help us to see our Savior, Jesus Christ. So first in geography and God's plan, you know, God's people, is it because they were numerous and powerful that God chose them? No, they were the least among the nations and they lived along the strip along the Mediterranean. But you have these major kingdoms to the north, the south, the east, the west. They are surrounded. And in order for these kingdoms to fight one another, to trade one another, they've got to go through this little strip of land. Um, as if God maybe intended geography to play a part in the spreading of the good news which happens you know, after the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit sends people out to, to know and to understand how God does have the whole world in his hands. It means salvation for us all. This past Sunday, our church sang, Jesus shall reign where'er the sun does its successive journeys run. His kingdom stretch from shore to shore till kingdom moons shall wax and wane no more. And we don't hear that phrase very often. People in realms of every tongue dwell on his love with sweetest song. And infant voices shall proclaim their earth, early blessings on his name. Every tongue confess, every knee shall bow, and acknowledge our salvation in Jesus because of all that our Lord has worked, not only through his people, but through his people, and then to these other nations, and ultimately into our hearts as well. We sing that hymn in Smithville on Sunday as well, and it certainly ah. fits very well with what we've read here in Zephaniah 2 this morning. Pastor Andrew Jago is the pastor at Bethany Lutheran Church in Alexandria, Virginia, helping us today with Zephaniah 2, verses 4 to 15. Pastor Jago, thanks for being our guest today. My pleasure. Thank you so much. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about the book of Zephaniah or the prophet Ezekiel, who we will pick up next week, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the open mic feature on the app to send up to a 60-second message to us. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow. Mm-hmm.